I have on the phone from Oxford, Professor Francis O'Gorman, who's been on the show a number of times. He is a Saintsbury Professor of English Literature at the University of Edinburgh, the author or editor of over 20 books, several of which we have discussed on this show, including late, most recently, Liberalism and Education, The Monopoly of an Idea, came out last year. He is known uh, internationally as a scholar of the Victorian age and the work of John Ruskin. We've talked about those things on this show. He is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, a companion of the Guild of St. George, honorary professor in the Ruskin Library, and he plays the organ, he swims, and he walks author's seat slowly. He took his degree at Oxford. He took a double first and doctorate in English literature. Francis, I've really been enjoying your photographs of your garden. I think it, I'm not sure. Yeah, on Facebook. They're lovely. Thanks, Stu. Well, thank you for having me back. Yes, I, 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 I'm, it's a small garden here, but um, uh, it's, uh, it's, a great, it's a great pleasure, and it's an enclosed space. So it's, although it's small, it's very private. Um, and, and a thumb trap, so that's lovely. Okay, we're going to talk about the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, you know, one of the greatest of all Catholic poets. And I've read several books about him. Of course, I've read his poetry since college. I just want to begin by, you know, making the observation that he seems to have had a very difficult life. Is that correct? Yes, he's a quite an unreachable figure, I think, in terms of biography. There have been some really distinguished efforts to, to reach him. Norman White would, would be one of those. I don't know, this is speculation, I don't know quite what the modern world would have made of him um, and whether there might not have been some evidence of... Uh, uh, a cognitive issue, some some kind of autism. It, 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 it's hard to know that, of course, to project these categories backwards. But there's something about his real difficulty with connecting with other people. His sense of, um, in, in all kinds of ways, it's in deep confusion about how to act. Um, ha- and certainly how to be happy within the world that he lived in and, and chose. I mentioned in one way of kind of self-destruction, it, it seems to me, which is very hard to fathom. Um, somebody who seems to, when things are getting tough, makes them even tougher for himself. Having said that, of course, the circumstances that surround him many of them of his own choosing were not conducive to hypersensitive man so it seems like Hopkins by the way I should just say that we all now know of this poet as Gerard Manley Hopkins but um, he never used that middle name it was it was Robert Bridges uh, publishing him in 1918 long after Hopkins was dead who introduced it was his father's name. Now, one doesn't want to become too psychoanalytical here, but what a challenging name to have. First of all, it's your father's name, but also manly. So it's just worth noting that to everybody that knew Hopkins, he was either Gerald Hopkins or occasionally Gerald M. Hopkins. How old was he when he entered the Jesuit order? Well, he just he just graduated from Oxford, so he was born in... Uh, um, 1844. So, I mean, he's, I can't remember exactly, but he's in his early 20s. And how did and they takes- treat him? I mean, I mean, I know I've read one sort of novelized biography of him by Ron Hansen. I have in my head that he wasn't treated very well in, in the order, that there was some, for some reason, they didn't quite understand what he was up to. Well, it's my understanding. First of all, I mean, he, he didn't have to become a Jesuit, um, but he does, you know, he chooses the most disciplinarian of the uh, uh, post-Reformation, counter-Reformation orders. 
and, and, and want, 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 might want to reflect on the kind of psychology that's behind that choice. And certainly he does find the, the, the training, uh, which is, you know, as you know, takes a long time. He finds that hard, and in the end he fails the, the last theology exam, which means that he will never obtain senior preferment within within the order. I mean, I think that, from what I understand, the Jesuits did their very best with with Hopkins. I mean, he must have been very difficult. You know, he, he says in, in the poem of Kingfish of Catch, Catch Fire, his eye is caught by things that counter original, spare, strange. And that is a epitome, I think, of Hopkins' own self-knowledge at one important level. He's writing about himself there. I don't think the Jesuits were particularly hard on him, but I think they didn't understand him, which is not to their discredit, because I don't think really anybody did. Certainly, as a poet, I mean, he had no, as it were, predecessors who wrote the way he did, that he was, there was something in his poetry entirely new, which, of course, would have caused confusion, at least initially. I mean, how different was he as a poet from the great poets that preceded him? Well, like many an original poet, he starts off sounding like, <laughs> sounding like other poets. Um, the, the, the very early surviving poetry it, it, it tends to be in a romantic period mode um, and every now and again there are sort of later essays in uh, poetic essays in, in the voice of another poet perhaps most surprisingly at Marion um, is, uh, is a Swinburnian poem Swinburne I think would be amazed to find that uh, um, Hopkins had been imitating him slowly a very distinctive and at times deeply strange and at other times deeply convincing voice begins to emerge. Writing from the middle of the 20th century after the experience of modernist poetry, Hopkins, not least for F.R. Lieber, seems a precursor. He's read as somebody who has broken the lyric uh, formula the lyric patterns of Ex explain Kenton. that to our listeners a little bit what does it mean to well, say that so he broke with the lyric tradition so if you, if you think of exquisite perfection of let, let's say Alfred Tennyson yeah. or, or Matthew Arnold they're very what? certain they're very declamatory they're very uh, and, and, it, yeah. and it's very it's very formally polished Yes. Um, I mean, that's not to say it's not invented, far from it, but it ha the, the poet has a remarkable control over grammar and, and syntax, and it's metrical. It's the rhythmic patterns are consistent. Now, Hopkins breaks that um, and comes up with some rather complicated ways of expressing why and how he breaks from it. Francis, could you sort of illustrate this with a poem? Yes. Okay. Uh, this is a little example of the, the transition, as it were, of Hopkins. So one of the very early poems, written as, as Rex, but later, later known as Heaven Haven, in 1864. So Hopkins is only 20 here. Now this, although it's a lovely, lovely poem, sounds more like a Victorian poem in, in the terms of its lyrical control. I'll just read you with a T-shirt and I have desired to go where springs not fail, to fields where flies no sharp inside his hail, and a few lilies blow. And I have asked to be where no storms come, where the green swell is in the havens dumb, and out of the swings of the sea. Beautiful little miniature there, with like pre-Raphaelite detail, a few lilies. Lovely controlled ABBA rhyme scheme. Very nicely done. But it isn't, it isn't, it isn't the voice of the maturer Hopkins who fr fractures lines in terms of grammar and syntax 
fractured words themselves. Now, now, what do you mean by fractured lines? What what do you mean by fractured? Well, I'll turn to a few examples from the the, the only long poem that um, Hopkins uh, concludes, the, the, the famous wreck of the Deutschland, which he didn't see in print. Um, and just listen to the chiming of the sounds from this one particular stanza and the startling, um, fracturing, to use that word, of syntax. So this is just one stanza. I am soft-fished in an hourglass, and the wall fast, but mind with emotion adrift, and it crowds and it combs to the fore. I said you have water in the well to a poise, to a pain, but wrote with always, all the way down from the tall fells or flanks of the hole, a vein of the gospel proper, a pressure, a principle, Christ in. I'm looking at that. It's the uh, about the fourth stanza. I'm looking at it. Now, where's the fracture? It's the beginning of, this is a poem at the beginning of uh, Hopkins' exploration of what he really what he can do to the English language uh, to put it under enormous pressure but here in this very early essay poetic essay is different isn't it from from the from that control heaven oh no question Um, no no question so different say from Dover Beach or something like that absolutely right um so there's a fracturing pattern quite the right word to use here, but the, the rhythmic patterns are distinctive and they're most certainly not uh, metrical. He's, he's moving towards that pattern which he would later describe as sprung rhythm. Um, uh, that, that is to say, um, lines which have a distinctive rhythmic pattern, but it's not consistent metrical throughout the, throughout the lines of the poem. Well, let um, me, Francis, read something, and and, t- and here's here's where I hear the fracture, in that same stanza from the record of Deutschland. Yep. I am soft sift. Sil- excuse me. I am soft sift in an hourglass at the wall. Now there's a hyphen there after yep. hourglass at the wall. That is a surprise, and then it goes fast, but mind with emotion, a drift. And it crowds and it combs to the fall. Again, there is the, the hyphen in the second sentence there, uh, as it were, stops abruptly the flow of the yes. line. Yes, I, I, that's exa- exactly right. And I mean, I think one needs to look at Hopkins' often distinctive marks of punctuation, um, punctuation as almost as if one is looking at a musical score. Um, and I mean that in a precise sense, which is that um, they are directions for performance, um, often enough at any rate. They're directions that uh, where to take accents, for example, in that, in that particular stanza. They're directions about pauses, almost about gestures. So he's using punctuation in, in a distinctive way. But I, I also think, just thinking of fracturing in those lines that you've just read there, deal. you do have to sit back and think, what on earth does that mean? So, I'm soft-fit in an hourglass. Well, presumably that uh, uh, Hopkins is comparing himself with a sand in a, in, a, in an egg timer um, that he's running out um, that, that, that's moving down from one chamber to another. At the wall far. Now, in what way could Sand in an hourglass. He described that the wall fast. Does he mean the sand is pressed against the wall within the hourglass? Yes, probably that is what he means. And mind with emotion adrift. Okay, beginning to see it. It's that the sand is, is falling away, and it's at the top of the sand is you know beginning to register the fact that it's sinking away. What interests me here is just the challenge that this poet offers. Even in this image, which is finally explicable, but not instantly graspable. No. Um, so one one aware of Hopkins as persistently pushing, and it and it gets more extreme than than in this poem. 
consistently and, and look where the stanza things. ends. It begins with the declaration, I am soft sift in an hourglass. And then it ends with a pressure, a principal Christ gift. Yes. So how did we get from A to B? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I won't take up your list of time by trying to trying to figure that out. Um, well, I do um, want, I'll, 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 the, but you mentioned the phrase sprung rhythm, and anytime you look up Hopkins on anything, you see the phrase sprung rhythm. What exactly is yeah. that? Right. I think there are a couple of things to say about sprung rhythm. One is that Hopkins was a slightly elaborate theorist of his own practices, and as with the terms in state and in stress, which are important to him, um, he, he kind of constructed theoretical um, uh, uh, arguments or theoretical concepts, at any rate, um, to explain his practice. There's almost, there's almost something um, um, out of kind of the advanced biblical criticism here about... Um, finding kind of theoretical terms, sort of almost Germanic theoretical terms to explain uh, what's happening within a text. Now, sprung rhythm is something which is very familiar to modern poets, and broadly speaking, it's this, that the number of strong stresses, there are exceptions, but broadly speaking, the number of strong stresses in a line remains consistent or nearly consistent throughout a stanza or a sefet or octave, without the number of syllables being the same. So, in in, in so-called traditional scansion, you, you know, you might have a, an iambic pentameter with ten syllables, um, and the number of stresses in that would remain the same. But the syllabic count would also remain the same. Um, for Hopkins, the syllabic count can change, uh, but the strong stresses remain consistent. Now, which which what's a good line to represent sprung rhythm? Okay, so if you if if one thinks about the eighteen seventy seven poem God's Grandeur, um, which now here this is as Hopkins is beginning to develop what he will call sprung rhythm. He says, he says with this poem that it is standard rhythm um, counterpointed. Now, okay, that's another sort of Hopkins slightly confusing term with counterpointing, isn't it? But just take those two lines. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. Four strong stresses. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. Four strong stresses. But not in any sense. It wouldn't make sense to try to um, put those into classical metrical feet. The important thing for Hopkins there is that the ear picks up the consistency of in, in numbers of strong stresses. And it gathers to gathers a greatness, to greatness like the... Keep going. ...of oil. Crushed. Yeah. I did. Yeah, I mean, exactly. the, it, I think it would be wonderful. You just read this whole poem to us, because it's the one poem we play all, or in high school or in college, which really stays with you. This poem does. Can read it to us. Yes, certainly I will. And I, I just, I just know before I do say that this is, this is a poem that catches something which is quite distinctive in Hopkins' voice as he matures which is his sense of the beauty of nature um, to which his eye was extraordinary and his heart was, were extraordinarily well attuned. Um, he sent fear of nature as being spoiled by human intervention, which is a, a, a trope that matters deeply to Hopkins. God's grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. 
um, where's man Marge and shares man smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. For all this, nature is never sent. There lives his dearest freshness deep down to him. And though the last light of the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breath and our bright wings. You know, there, there are things about this poem that, that no matter how many times you read it or hear it read, just are so deeply affecting. Yes. You know, for example, the way you said, and for all this, nature is never spent. And how does he explain that? There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. Yes, and and isn't it it wonderful there? Just in in the the entry of the personal, which is so powerful, I think, in Hopkins, the the dearest freshness deep down things. That's, you know, if, if Hopkins had difficulty forming relationships with men and well, certainly with, with women um, uh, that just that presence of the word dearest uh, opens up the sense to which he is so connected, he is able to form a relationship with the natural world beautifully done and then, and then what does that, that turn into? that turns into the sun going down and the sun rising up yes and uh, this vision of the Holy Ghost with bright wings and a warm breast, as if yes. it was this yes. kind of angel or magnificent bird. Uh, you you yes. think of the morning yes. sky. Yeah. And, I mean, it, it, there's a more homely metaphor underneath that as well, isn't there? As the Holy Ghost as a hen. Um, I, I mean, yes. Out, surely from Jesus overlooking Jerusalem um, but you know the world breathes with warm breaths and bright wings you, the, the, the world is you know uh, cocooned um, it's momentary this image of the world being being um, uh, a brood um, uh, over which the Holy Ghost sits as, as you know a comforting warm it's, it's a very characteristic well it will become a very characteristic Hopkins um, mode whereby he, he introduces, you know, to put it in sort of grand fancy terms, vernacular images and vernacular language into the most profound and serious yes. theological um, and human experience. And, and, and that's, a, that's not the best example, but it's, a, it's an interesting example of that already. Well, you have, quite sh- you have Shook Foil, you have Wreck His Rod. Right, yeah. Me, the phrase "man's smell." <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's it's so, as it were, ordinary. If you if you sort of isolate those phrases, so ordinary. Yes, yes, absolutely, and yet put together in the in in a in a, in a form of uh, you know, once those ordinary things are put together, and Hopkins' spell, as it were, has been works over them, they're anything but ordinary, aren't they? There's a, there's a real sense of language being transformed from earthliness um, into something which is a tool for achieving something very different from earthly. I'm talking with uh, Francis O'Gorman, Professor Francis O'Gorman, uh, Saintsbury Professor of Literature at the University of Edinburgh. We're talking about Gerard Minley Hopkins, a priest, a Jesuit, and one of the greatest Catholic poets of all, but also an uh, incredible innovator in poetry and in style and image. We'll be right back with Professor O'Gorman after this message. I'm back with Professor Francis O'Gorman, University of Edinburgh, and we're talking about Gerard Manley Hopkins, Jesuit priest, and 
I want to ask you specifically, Francis, about the Windover. This is a little bit of a later poem than God's Grandeur. And what do we see in the Windover that shows the development of Hopkins as a poet from what we heard in God's Grandeur? Uh, uh, thanks, uh, Dio. Yes, this is a really very extraordinary poem, isn't it? I think, I mean, just, just taking it in a tiny bit of context, it, it does look likely that with the failure of the wreck of the Deutschland, uh, completed in 1876, to be published, Hopkins really turns away from any uh, ambitious form of the wreck of the Deutschland, roughly speaking, of Pindaric O's, inspired by that. And his much more familiar form thereafter is either the sonnet or a sort of abbreviated sonnet, which he called the Kirtle sonnet. One does, one does sort of wonder whether these were, <laughs> these were uh, forms that he could work on in his mind while discharging his duties as a, in a, in the parish. Um, that you know, fourteen lines or twelve lines in the case of the shorter one, he could he could sort of work on um, in in his head. Um, so the the, the Windhover is a remarkable, powerful example of, of a number of things. First of all, a popkin sense of the presence of Christ within uh, earthly life. Um, what? Has a, Will you read it to sorry. us? Will you read this one to us um, as well? Okay, I, I'll try this. This is quite a... Um, uh, 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 this is a dramatic poem. The Windhover to Christ our Lord. Just, just in square brackets, we wouldn't understand this poem, I think, if it didn't have that To Christ Our Lord is the subtitle. The Windhover, To Christ Our Lord. I caught this morning, morning minion, kingdom of daylight, dauphin, dapple, dawn, drawn, falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air, and striding high there. How he rung upon the rein of a wincing wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing, as a skate heel sweet smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind. My heart in hiding stirs for a bird. The achiever, the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valour and act, oh, air prime, team here, buckle. And the fire that breaks can be then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, oh my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plowdown billion shine, and blue bleak embers are, my dear, for gold themselves, and gash gold vermilion. <laughs> Utterly amazing. It's extraordinary. Uh, Sorry, she just said bow bend. They're not bow bend. <laughs> um, Gash but, gold vermilion. Can you yeah. think of a richer phrase, a more pungent phrase than that? And 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 isn't this extraordinary? So just just to just to, to try to unpack those last three lines for a moment. So you know the the the, the kind of child question: What does it mean? Okay. Well, what it means is at the literal level is this. I think. Um, sheer plough makes plough down silly and shine. So, you know, uh, horses ploughs human feet walking over uh, ploughed soil compresses it so that it begins, it gains a kind of shine to it. Okay, I think we can all recognise that. Um, they are, and that shine makes, makes Hopkins think of blue, bleak embers. And I think, you know, what, 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 pressed down soil, compacted soil, which has got that little gloss on it, can seem as if it's got a little bit of blue within it. Um, these bleak embers, as he now calls them, fall, call themselves. Okay, so when you when you break that soil open, it, yeah, it, it in, in Hopkins' imagination, it suddenly becomes gold vermilion. It opens up a kind of, uh, this has now become a bit more fanciful, opened up colour within it. It's that, it's that so, deep freshness down things coming into view. Exactly so. That's exactly right. So here, 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 the metaphor is of a, of a lump of compressed soil being broken open. But what? But Hopkins' language makes us think. Actually, this is about 
that is really about Christ's crucifixion, it's about the atonement, um, and that the clues, I suppose, are in four golden bells, you know, the, the fall is reversed by the atonement, Christ is gold dashed. Um, uh, but the, 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 the point is that what has been taken and put under huge pressure, the soil, opens up into something bright and pressure in Hopkins' imagination. That's a sort of extraordinary analogue uh, somewhere in the back of, of Hopkins' mind for the atonement for something that is uh, placed under huge pressure or someone placed under huge pressure um, and then uh, in the very state of being broken becomes, as it were, transformed. Um, it, <laughs> I, I can't think of another poet who would dare such uh, an analogy. Um, um, and it's so easy to miss, I think, the kind of theological thinking that's on Hopkins' mind and persistently sort of breaking out, as it were, in these daring, um, innovative, to use that overworked word, um, images and metaphors. Well, I want to ask you, Francis, it's because as you read this, it seems so obvious that the the way in which he lays the words out on the page is significant. There's, there's so many, he'll come to, for example, this, this line, Hi there, how he rung upon the rain of a wimpling, and then wing is the next word, but it's all by itself, yes. with, even without punctuation. And then you go to the next line, capital, in his ecstasy, exclamation yeah. point. So yeah. he's, he's playing with not just the words, of course, he's playing with their arrangement on the page, like yeah. a painting. Yes, yes, that, that's exactly right. And again, one can see Hopkins both using and, and, and drawing huge energies from an established form of sonnet, but also pushing it... Um, really formally to to the very edge of what, what it will tolerate. Um, Hopkins' ear is so dominant, I think, in the in the production, it's a mechanical way of putting it, the, the, the creation of the lines, and not, not these lines only, but of the lines of his poetry. He has, as a poet, an extraordinarily acute ear, which, which wasn't true instantly, for him as a musician, oddly enough. Um, uh, uh, um, and I, I think sometimes one, one, one notices the way in which Hopkins arranges his lines according to sound, um, most particularly when it doesn't quite work. Um, Rereading um, um, the record of a Deutsch sound, you know, you notice sometimes when, when, when the, the, the ear is trapped producing too much, Chiming. I mean, I was thinking of the line, the goal was a shoal, or <clears throat> and frightful and nightfall, folded rueful a day, um, where, where, where actually the acoustic properties of the line are so prominent um, that one, one slightly shakes one's head in an effort to understand what actually the content of that line might be. So I think Hopkins occasionally loses, loses control because it's Give over too much to sound, um, but this, the line that you just read there isn't the case. Isn't the case, is it? So rung upon the rain of a wimpling wing, lovely chiming of eye, uh, 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 of wimpling wing. The eye sound, the accidental sound there, and the um, rung rung upon the rain. He's, he's doing this all the time in his best poetry, just making particular word sounds connect with each other, and it, it, it's not so much. Or you know, the particular meaning he wants to attach to this—just that really sense, sense of poetic energy, um, a, a kind of delight in the capacity of language to surprise us. But which which reflects a, a very powerful incarnatedness. Uh, there's there's nothing here of the Jesuit intellectual. I mean, this is this is a man who uh, sees 
his faith embodied in nature, in every in whatever is around him. Yeah. Well, that that's a really interesting comment, Deal. And I mean, I, I, I I'm perhaps going to say something that lots of people won't agree with, but it does strike me that that part of Hopkins' sense of himself um, and uh, his place in the world remains actually interestingly Protestant. Now, in, in, in an effort to justify that rather... Yeah, jump in there and explain uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I might... I, I think the poem that I think makes me think this, reflect on it at any rate, um, is, is the untitled poem, uh, As Kingfisher Catch Fire, Dragonflies Draw Flame, one of one of his most wonderful poems about yes. about the natural world, and and going back to what you just said, this is a very good example of Hopkins' um, sense that Christ is everywhere, and that we meet him in our experience of other people and uh, of the natural world all the time. That there is a deeply imminent sense of Christ's presence. Um, and there is no sense whatsoever of the uh, of a kind of remote figure overlooking or figures overlooking the world. No, Christ, like the Holy Spirit, brooding, um, is here and and now. But but this connects with Hopkins' sense, which he will call inscape. That is of each individual thing having its own very particular role, function, and identity. Um, uh, uh, and in, in state matters to, to Hopkins very much individuality, things doing their own things, being free and uh, independent is, is, is crucial to his poetry um, and, and so for instance just at the end of the first part of this, of this poem he, he says if we've got things he says, each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being indoors, each one well, self, goes itself, myself, it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. Glor- glorious lines. Um, yeah, I uh, what I do is me, for that I came. Yeah. What does that mean, Francis? Well, I think I think it is Hopkins' strong sense that every living creature, which includes human beings, but all other all other creatures, kingfishers, dragonflies, fish, every living creature, has a particular identity, selfness, individuality. What 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 Hopkins would call inscape. Um, a unique being and set of desires and um, qualities. And so he sees everything in the natural world in this poem, crying out that, um, that you know, his version of the instinct, what I do with me for that I came. God has put me on the earth to be me and to do exactly what it is that I do. And that strikes me as more, as that strikes me as something that's coming transformed from Hopkins' um, uh, pre-Catholic experience. Um, that very strong sense of radical individualism. There um, is a, there is a sense of that, but you need to read us the last last stanza. Yes, which is where he gathers everything, doesn't he, into, in, into uh, every, everybody being themselves, fulfills what Christ wants. So, yes, trying what I do is me for that such okay. I say more. The just man justices keeps grace. That keeps all his graces, his goings graces. Acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Christ. For Christ plays in Ten thousand faces, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father, through the features of men's faces. You know, I I believe that. I, I do think that uh, we do see 
things in other people's faces. Uh, I think we see character, virtues, vices. I think we see this, you know, the touchings of the spirit. Uh, I do, I do think uh, he's onto something here. It, 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 it's a very powerful and, and, and moving idea, isn't it? And sometimes when <laughs> I often think of this poem when you know getting frustrated with somebody or you know finding somebody uh, deeply unpleasant, um, it, you know, one just has to remind oneself that Christ might be in there too, and you know is in there too. Just you might not be able to see it. Um, and uh, Hopkins has got that, I think, so uh, eloquently. Now, can you give us an example of uh, one of these later poems that uh, sort of take a semi-tragic turn? Yeah. So Hopkins was, I mean, going back to your first point, Hopkins' life was not an easy one. Though I, I genuinely don't think Hopkins was, you know, was quite capable of an easy life. He didn't take anything easily. Um, on the on his failure to to pass the final theological exam, the editor that stuck with what to do with him. So he sent to um, what, what had been Newman's Catholic University in Dublin, now um, University College Dublin, um, um, as a junior. Um, well, he was called professor, but I, I guess we, we wouldn't call them professor now. He was a very good low-grade low um, job teaching, or at least theoretically teaching, but he started with an enormous amount of examining rather than teaching. Um, in, in the Catholic, he, he'd read great uh, Latin and Greek at, at Oxford. Um, and uh, Hopkins had a very acute sense of exile. Um, uh, he, he often thought of himself as being outside of things, um, uh, th- this is partly um, about being a Catholic in England. Um, he calls himself not part of the main, main mainstream, the established faith. Um, he, at, at some level, he surely knows that he is an exile from, you know, the way most other people live live their lives. He is strange, counter-original, fair and strange. And it, and it might be, although we can't really know, but it might be that got something to do with the, with the sense of his own homosexuality, which we don't know. Um, he's, he's really partly exiled from his family on, on his conversion to Catholicism. Not entirely exiled. He's very interested in exile, the nuns who die in them. In the for instance, and then he is at the, t- at the end of his life. He moves to Ireland, and he says that he is now at a third remove. He's strictly exiled, um, and uh, with the with the tedious work that he's given, the end of marking and the end of grading, yes, um, uh, and with probably very unhealthy. Uh, water um, in the uh, in the university where he is boarded, um, he begins to suffer what we would think of as a nervous breakdown. Um, and so there is a small collection of sonnets, sometimes called the Terrible Sonnets, um, in which he describes his own uh, faltering, both as a human being and as, as a physical being um, and the, the struggle of his faith as um, a, a, both a literal and a metaphorical darkness depends on him. So I'll just read you one of the so-called terrible sonnets. Um, I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. Um, this is, you know, a very isolated man, unhappy in his role, physically beginning to fall apart and expressing a kind of startling puzzlement at himself and also conscious of puzzlement as, as to what God wants from him so again upon it I wake and feel the spell of dark 
hours. Oh, what black hours we have spent this night. What sights you heart saw way you went. And more months in yet longer life below. With witness I speak this. But where I say hours, I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives, alas, away. I am gore, I am heartburn. God's most deep decree, bitter would have no taste. My taste was me, bone built in me, flesh filled, blood rimmed the cur. Self-east of spirit had dulled those bowers. I see the loss are like this, and they're scourged to be as I am mine. They're sweating towels, but worse. Where is Hopkins spiritually at this point, do you think, in his life? Baffled. I think I, I, I would say, just in one, in one word, um, I think that, you know, this, this is, to use modern terms, this is extraordinary mental health poetry, isn't it? it, it it's the, I, I mean, the only analogy I can think of in, in the 19th century for poetry writing like this is a poem that Hopkins himself valued um, and associated himself with, which is John Clare's, uh, one of John Clare's asylum poems, I Am, which, which equally is about, you know, kind of deraffinated, um, uh, puzzled self looking at a, a life that seems to be destroyed. Um, there, there is a sense here, isn't there, that God is still there, um, but it is, a, a, you know, it's the dignity of God, isn't it? God, God de- decrees to make Hopkins taste bitter. There's, there, there's the kind of theodicy here, there's, there's rather a kind of punitive divinity that does not, at this stage, the capital in the last one of the does not seem to offer optimism or, or comfort. No, I mean, we think, it reminds me of Mother Teresa, the revelations about Mother Teresa's life, uh, which we only found out after her death that she carried a terrible dark suffering uh, most of her life. But here, I think Hopkins is just saying it out loud now. Again, as you said at the beginning of the show, none of these were published in his lifetime, correct? Uh, I mean, there were a tiny number of poems which were published, but they weren't weren't the, the voice of Hopkins that we would today recognize. He, he struck up a friendship at Oxford with Robert Bridges, um, then training to be a doctor, but he you know, eventually gave up medicine in order to concentrate on poetry and, and would indeed um, become poet laureate eventually. And it's um, Hopkins entrusts um, Bridges with copies of his poetry and discusses in you know, very advanced language and detail of his poetry with Bridges, who was clearly very fond of Hopkins and, and, and very patient with him. Um, and um, on Hopkins, you know, sad death um, in, in 1889 of um, uh, typhoid, um, uh, the custodian of his relics, so remains, a poetic remains, it is Bridges. Um, who finally publishes them uh, with uh, an introduction in 1918. So although Hopkins was born in 1844 and is, you know, through and through a Victorian in terms of age, age span, he comes into poetic life, um, you know, only four years before um, the Wasteland uh, or George's isn't um, isn't that inter- that's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And so do you he, know he, if whether Hopkins had did Hopkins have his publication of his poems? How did they impact Eliot? Do you know? Um, uh, Eliot is certainly interested in in Hopkins, but the the person that has the most effect on um, on on Hopkins is. Uh, reputation, well, on his 
significant is, is as I mentioned, Ethan Liebes, um, who is largely dismissive of uh, Victorian poetry. Um, but uh, the one luminous exception for for Liebes and his you know, judgment and um, influence was second to none. Um, uh, not, not least in English literature departments in British universities. Uh, the, the, the great exception was Hopkins, who, whom Liebers recognised as somebody who, as it were, came from nowhere. Um, that this, this, this voice is, um, uh, unique. And it's, there isn't a, there isn't a, a, ge- a genesis that you can provide to explain it. It's, it's a kind of, for to leave it, it's an authentic voice that suddenly establishes its own uniqueness, its own instinct, as it were. Well, Francis, we have about a minute left. Um, if a listener is struggling to decide whether or not to pick up a volume of Hopkins and read it, if they're teetering on the brink, what would you say? I would, I would say that the best way of reading Hopkins is to do it quite slowly in a poem, a short poem, begin with a short poem, um, uh, and read it, read it aloud. It, it's very much poetry for, for the ear as well as the eye. Um, and keep reading that poem um, over, over and again. And I, I think that they, this might be at any rate, they just begin to take hold of, hold of one. And lines, individual collocations, and whole lines just stay in the mind, and you know, they don't—they don't leave you. They become, you know, so sometimes sentimental. They become part of oneself. They do, and I'm so glad that we chose this occasion to come back and reread Hopkins and talk about it. Francis, once again, thank you for being on the show, Church and Culture. And I look forward to our discussion and deciding what we want to talk about next. Thanks very much, Steve. It's a great pleasure, as always. Thank you. And to all of you listening, I'll be back at this time and this day next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.